You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 6. It can be found on page 1083 of the Black Bibles. Please follow along in your own Bibles. Um, we are reading from the Christian Standard Bible. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. 
This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. As we look at your word, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your instruction. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question. How often, how often do you feel self-condemned? I know it's a bit of a heavy question to open with, right? But think about it. How often do you feel self-condemned? You know, not long ago, I was at a church service and I was listening to a sermon and it was calling me to live a life worthy of the gospel. It was saying, put your sin to death. Pursue holiness. Love like Christ. Trust the Lord. And it was a wonder, I think it was a wonderful motivational sermon to encourage me to do all those things. But you know what? As I sat there, I didn't really feel motivated. Instead of feeling strengthened and confident to go out and bear my cross and love the Lord, this preacher, he's just making me feel guilty. And I was the preacher, right? Because the truth is, when I stop and think about it, I don't often live a life that's worthy of the gospel. If I'm honest with my heart, day to day, I don't put my sin to death as much as I ought. I don't pursue holiness. I don't love like Christ. I don't trust the Lord near as much as I should. And too often, if you catch me at a good moment, I'll tell you, oh, no, no, I know what's right in my head. But I let my emotions get the better of me, and it leads me to do what is wrong. And the truth is, I just can't help it, right? And you know what happens, right? It always goes the same way. When it all hits the fan, it all goes pear-shaped. As always, I sit there at the end, and I just feel guilty. I just feel condemned. Condemned by my own heart, condemned for my own sin. And then you look inside my mind, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, gosh, why am I like this? How could God ever love me? Why would God ever save me? Maybe on a darker day I might even think, maybe I'm not even really saved. And hey, you know what? If living for Jesus is this hard, and if it means feeling condemned day after day after day, why even bother? Why not just walk away from it all? Give in to the condemnation of my heart and leave the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you've ever felt anything that approximates to that, but how often do you feel self-condemned? You know, in moments like those, I'll tell you what I need. I need something solid to, gr to, to ground my faith. I need something external to me to anchor my soul, to remind me not just of what I feel, but what is true. I need to hear the one thing that is truer than the reality of my sin. I need to hear the truth of the gospel. But you see, in the end, the basis of our eternal life, as we've said in week one, not me, but he, is not myself, but my saviour. And if I keep looking within, I will never have any confidence or assurance whatsoever. Because only the truth, only the truth of the gospel can give us true confidence. And today, John wants us to live in that truth. It's a truth expressed in love. A truth that's confident in Jesus. And a truth that is confirmed by the Spirit. It's a truth expressed in love. Let's look at this together in verses 11 to 18. Well, this is what this is John's question, right? If you want to know that you're living in the truth, ask yourself this question. Do you love one another? Do you love one another? 
It's actually not quite what we expect, is it, right? Think about it. The ultimate proof of whether you belong to the truth isn't whether you know the Bible, as important as that is. The ultimate proof of whether you belong to the truth is whether you love one another. You see, if my life isn't marked by love, I need to seriously start asking, do I really belong to the truth? Look at verse 12. What does John do? He points back to Genesis 4 and he points us to the life of Cain. Cain, he was that firstborn son of Adam and Eve. And instead of loving his brother Abel, what did he do? He hated him and he murdered him. And John says he was of the evil one. Or if we think back to verse 8, he was one of the devil's children. That's why his life was marked by hatred. And John warns us, don't be like him. Don't be like him, because a life marked by hatred is a life that has not been changed by the gospel. Or put another way, a life that lacks love is a life that lacks truth. Just just pause there and let that sink in for a moment. A life that lacks love is a life that lacks truth. You know, I can think of friends, and at the worst of my moments, I can be a bit like this as well, who claim to be Christian, even know their Bibles, love deep theology, but when you look at their lives, their lives are marked by a distinct lack of love. And that's a problem, right? Because verse 14 says that love is the definitive sign that we've passed from death to life. Not, not that I can pass the theology exam, not that I can answer Bible trivia, The definitive proof is love. It's the stamp on every Christian spiritual passport, love. If we've been saved by God's love, then surely, right, your life would be marked by God's love. And the flip side is also true. Verse 15 says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now, up at this point, you might go, I'm with you, John, most of the way, but murderer? It's a bit harsh, isn't it, right? Like, hating someone, it's not too bad. No real victims there. Murder, that's, that's pretty high order, right? But he's saying, actually, hating another believer is as serious as driving a knife through their heart. Matthew 5.21, Jesus agrees. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. There's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You see, what we're doing is, when we hate another believer, we in one sense are wishing away their existence. We might not be killing them with our hands, but we are killing them in our hearts. You see, that's how serious it is to hate one another, to not love one another, to not forgive one another. And so John is almost inviting us right now, yes, right now, to stop. Take a moment and ask yourself, is there someone against whom I harbor ill will? Is there someone towards whom I am loveless? Is there someone who I simply cannot forgive? Brother and sister, if you answered yes to any of those questions, I want you to hear 
and carefully listen to verse 16. This is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. And if Jesus laid down his life for us, then how can we not do the same for one another? I mean, we were once his enemies, and we didn't deserve a shred of his kindness, but God forgave you in love. He forgave me in love. How then can we not do the same for another brother or sister for whom the Lord Jesus died? How can the truth of the gospel reside in us if we refuse to love another believer? You see, if you're finding it hard to love or forgive someone, never forget this. Jesus laid down his life for you in love. How could we not do the same? So if you're not a Christian, please know this. Jesus loves you so much that he laid down his life to save you. He was born as a human. He embraced your weakness. And out of love, he laid down his life, died in our place, also that you might be forgiven. And also that you might live in his love forever. You might wonder, Adam, what does it mean to be a Christian? I get asked that from time to time. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, John's answer is this. Being a Christian means to be saved by God's love, to share in God's love, and to live out God's love. Saved by God's love, to share in God's love with his people, and to live it out among one another. And for us Christians, that means that we're called to love like Jesus loves. And if he loved us by becoming one of us and, and physically dying for us, that means that our love for one another, it should be as tangible as Jesus' own body. Let me put it this way, the incarnation gives flesh to our love. Does that make sense? The incarnation gives flesh to our love. It means that our love isn't just some spiritualized, ethereal reality. It's concrete, it's physical, it's tangible, it hits the ground, it matters. That's why the incarnation matters. In verse 17, John asks, If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, or we might say, closes our hearts towards him, how? How does God's love reside in him? You see, if you don't love as tangibly as Jesus has loved you, then how can you possibly claim you've experienced his love? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. That is the truth of the gospel. Can you hear what he's saying? Talk is cheap, put your money where your mouth is. Our love has to be more than mere talk. Because you know what? Jesus' love, thank God, was more than mere talk. It was as tangible as his life and his death. So if you want to know that you have eternal life, ask yourself this question. Is your love more than mere talk? Is your love more than mere talk? So often as Christians, we think that everything is a spiritualized reality. I think Gnosticism is alive and well. We still think that the real thing is the spiritualized reality up there, and the stuff down here doesn't really matter. So within church families, what do we do? We say, oh, we'll love one another in deep and spiritual ways. So I'll come to Mark and say, 
hey Mark, I love you, I'll be praying for you, which means I won't be praying for you. And it means next week when I see him, I'll go, hey Mark, I was praying for you, which means I just prayed for you when I saw you so that I could tell you I've been praying for you. But there is a tangibility and an inescapable concreteness to this love. You see, if if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, do you give of your possessions, your finances, your time to love one another, to love believers within this church or believers outside this church? If you see around our church family that our brother or sister is struggling with loneliness, do you sacrifice your time and energy to care for them? Do you physically go to them just as Jesus physically came to us. I know right now in a growing church, it's so easy for our friendship groups to close in on ourselves. But a church that lives in the truth is a church that sacrifices in love. A church that lives in the truth is a church that sacrifices in love. That's a picture of true fellowship. Because the truth is concretely, visibly physically, tangibly expressed in love. You see, that's how you can be confident that you're living in the truth, if your life is marked by love. Now, I know what you're thinking. Adam, I remember how you started the sermon a few minutes ago, and this is not really strengthening my confidence. In fact, right now, I just feel like, well, guiltier than ever before. Because, you know what? John repeats himself, right? I know that I should love others. I know that I should lay down my life for others. I know that I should sacrifice out of love for others, but it's just so hard. And I just don't. And now you're telling me that love is the concrete expression of the truth. So now I'm wondering, right, do I even have the truth at all? You've sent me back to square one. Condemned all over again. But that feeling is precisely what John expects you to have in mind. Let's look at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever what? Whenever our hearts condemn us. Whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Friends, do you hear that? This is the best news you'll ever hear, right? God sees your heart, and He sees your sin and your guilt. He knows your lovelessness, your struggle to sacrifice, and even your occasional meanness and unkindness of heart. And yet, where our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. He is greater than our condemnation. You see, our eternal life isn't based on how loving or unloving we are, and it's not decided by my subjective feelings of condemnation. No, our eternal life is grounded in the objective, unchanging, unshakable truth about Jesus. It's the best news you'll ever hear. For those of you who know me well, you'll know that I'm an emotional guy, and that comes with its problems. Because so often I allow my subjective feelings to dictate my reality. If I feel condemned by God, then you know what? I must be condemned by God. But Jeremiah 17.9 warns us that actually my feelings are fickle and my heart is deceitful. 
And if I listen to the condemnation of my heart, I'll be so tempted to give up on God. Uh, Vaughan Roberts is the rector uh, or the senior pastor of a church in Oxford called St. Ebbs. And he tells the story of a Christian lady who was so depressed and she would say over and over again things like this. I'm utterly useless. I'm good to no one. I just can't go on anymore. It's hopeless. If you were her pastor, what would you say to her? What would you say to her? What did she say? I'm utterly useless. I'm no good to anyone. I can't go on anymore. You know what her pastor said to her? It wasn't Vaughan Roberts. It was his predecessor. He looked at her and he said, facts, not feelings, Daphne. Facts, not feelings, Daphne. And she held on to that for the rest of her life. She decided that she wasn't going to trust her feelings. She was was going to trust the truth, the truth that she was loved by God. It sounds harsh, but it is actually the greatest comfort that we need facts, not feelings. Because when our hearts condemn us of sin, I need to know the truth that God is greater than our hearts. The The famous Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McChain, who wrote the impossibly hard Bible reading plan, once wrote this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Isn't that beautiful? For every look at yourself, for every moment of condemnation, for every moment of self-condemnation, take ten looks at Christ and see there what Jesus has done for you. Because when I look at myself, all I'll feel is nothing but condemnation. But when we look at the Lord Jesus, when we look at Christ, verse 21 says that I can have confidence before God. Confidence that, my, confidence that God is greater than my heart. Confidence that I have been forgiven in the Lord Jesus. And with that confidence, I can be sure that I'll receive whatever we ask from Him. That's what the next verse says. We can receive whatever we ask from Him. Do you know what that means? It means that we can approach God in prayer whenever we're feeling guilty, fearful, and ashamed. It means that we can stand before God, not condemned, but confident. Not because of us. No, that would be the last reason. But all because of Jesus. Not because our hearts are great. No, we know they're not. It's because God is greater than our hearts. Not because we loved God, but as we'll see next week, because God first loved us. That's why in verse 21, John has something very specific in mind. He's saying that if we pray to God, asking not just for anything at all, but specifically for the forgiveness of our sins, we can be confident that we'll receive it. We can be confident that we'll be forgiven. And because we will be forgiven, we can be confident to stand before God. You see, however condemned your heart may be, God is greater than your heart. And because you've been forgiven, that means you, yes, you you can stand before God innocent, unashamed, and sing, no condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach, bold, confident, assured I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own.
So you may be someone who's attended church your whole life. But all this time, you've never actually felt confident of your salvation. Never confident that you're actually saved. You struggle against sin, you know that it's wrong, but you just constantly slide back and you constantly feel condemned. And in the end, you're just trapped, right? You're trapped in a life that looks Christian on the outside, but you know that if someone came near and if someone just popped the bonnet and looked on the inside, there would be very little Christ to find. And it's scary. You don't want to be found out. And you've almost come too far to now talk to your friends about it. But if that's you, I want you to know it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to live a life with a facade of false confidence that covers a heart of guilt and condemnation. It is actually possible to stand before God confident both inside and out, not because of you, but because God is greater. He's greater than your condemnation. You can be confident not in yourself, but in the truth about Jesus. And all you have to do is right there in verse 23. Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus, and love one another as He commanded us. Put your trust in Jesus and trust Him to the point of obedience. Because the source of our confidence is not ourselves. Thank God for that. The source of our confidence is all in Jesus. For every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. But sometimes, you might think, Adam, my confidence isn't shaken by my heart within me. It's shaken by the millions of voices around me. I think I'm okay, but the moment I listen to my friend, my friend who walked away from Jesus, who now tells me, hey, life is so much better on the other side, then it becomes hard. There's people online who abandon their faith and then seek to deconstruct mine. That my challenge is not my heart within, my challenge is the voices without. And through the cacophony of all those false truths, it's so hard for me to hear the gospel truth about Jesus. You know, Christians in the first century were facing that very threat. In chapter 4, verse 1, John writes that many false prophets have gone out into the world. And these false prophets, they're claiming to speak the truth. They're claiming to speak by the Spirit. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Christian for a moment. I know it's a bit hard, but ro roll with me for a moment, right? You'd be really, really confused, right? You'd go to church, gather with the fellowship of believers, and what would you hear? You'd hear that old, old story, the truth about Jesus, handed down from the apostles, that Jesus lived and died for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'd say, yes, I'm reminded of all those things that are true and beautiful and good. I will cling to the Lord and His promises. And then you go home. And when you go home, you'll meet your family and your friends, your family and friends who used to be part of the fellowship, but since they've left. And what do you hear at home? Jesus isn't truly human. Sin isn't sin. Jesus didn't really die for you. And so here you are, you're left standing back among two people that you love, here both two claims to the truth, and you ask yourself, who do I believe? It's awfully confusing. How am I supposed to hold on to this truth when I have this group of people over here pulling me away with a false truth? John tells us in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Thank you, John. Remarkably clear. The litmus test for the truth is the gospel of Jesus. Verse 6, this is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. So, if you want to know which voice to listen to, here's an idea. Listen to the spirit who confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And you might think that sounds so far away from my experience. I don't really have people in my life saying that. But I want you to know that even today, there are many so-called Christians who claim to speak by the Spirit, but in reality, they deny the gospel of Christ. There are, there are church leaders who publicly state uh, that they would happily abandon the Apostles' Creed and with it, the person of Jesus. Somehow, they get elected to denominational leadership. I have no idea how. There are other preachers who claim to speak by the Spirit and directly of God with the same power and authority as the Bible. So don't worry worry about what the Bible says. When I'm speaking, this is the Spirit speaking to you. And then there are whole denominations who say that God's gift of sex isn't bound to the safety of marriage of a man and a woman. That they're calling sin not sin, and even worse, they're removing our need for a saviour. John warns us, don't listen to them. They're not speaking by the Spirit. They're preaching a different gospel. And if you listen to their voices, they will undermine your confidence. They'll erode your assurance. They'll shipwreck your faith. But those voices are all around us. Verse 3 says that even now it's already in the world. So the question for us is this, how will we clearly hear the gospel in a world full of lies? How will we clearly hear the gospel in a world full of lies? And just look at verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. And you want to know why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Isn't that remarkable, right? Back in chapter 3, verse 20, we read that God is greater than our hearts. And now in chapter 4, verse 4, we read that God is greater than the one who is in the world. He's greater than the devil. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of the one who seeks to deceive you, who seeks to lead you astray, because God is greater than he. He is greater than the enemy within and greater than the enemy without. In fact, if you wanted... You know, three words to sum up this passage. There it is. God is greater. So when we we feel tempted to believe those voices around us, when Satan accuses us of our sin before God, when he tells you your sin is too great, your past too stained, your life too broken for God to ever forgive you, don't believe him. God is greater than he. Or sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do you do? Upward. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And you said, you might say, Adam, I looked up and it didn't, it didn't have its effect. I don't feel confident. Look up again. Robert Murray McChain would say, look up ten times more. Don't believe every spirit. Don't listen to every voice. Listen to the voice of the Spirit who speaks the word of the Lord. Just look at verse 6. 
We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. Us being the apostles who speak the words of the Spirit. So if you want to test the spirits, verse 2, and not be deceived by the voices around you, here's what you've got to do. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. Now, lots of people have lots of different ideas about how you listen to the Holy Spirit. And let me be clear, you don't listen to the Holy Spirit by sitting in your room, playing music in the background, and waiting for a random thought to enter your mind. You listen to the voice of the Spirit by reading the Word of the Lord. You listen to the voice of the Spirit by reading the Word of the Lord. Look at John 14, 26. Jesus says, The Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I, the Lord Jesus, have told you. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, that is, breathed by His Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21, uh, Peter, Peter says that in the Bible, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. How does the Spirit speak? The Spirit speaks the Word of God. The Spirit speaks the Scriptures. The Spirit speaks the Gospel. Don't divide the two. If you want to be soaked in the Spirit, be soaked in the Scriptures. If you want to be deep in the Spirit, be deep in the Word. For that is how He speaks. He speaks through the Bible, and let me tell you why that's good. If He speaks through the Bible, He confirms the objective, unshakable, unchanging truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't go the way of the Gnostics by pursuing some mystical, um, speculative revelation. Plant your feet on solid ground. Remember the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that he laid his life down for us, that God the Father loves you so much that he has made you his children forever. Listen to the voice of the Spirit by reading the word of the Lord, and I promise you it will confirm the truth in you for you each and every day. You know, in Homer's Odyssey, the Greek hero Odysseus is traveling home to Ithaca from the, after the Trojan War. And on his journey, on his voyage home, his ship has to pass by two fabled sirens. You may have heard of them before. The sirens, they're beautiful monsters with even more beautiful voices. Their voices, though, are beautiful but deadly. They sing enchanting songs to entice sailors to change their course and cast their ships upon the rocks. But Odysseus and his men need to go home. But they must travel by these dangerous voices. So what do they do? In order to safely sail beyond the sirens, Odysseus orders that his soldiers block their ears with beeswax and they tie him to the mast of the ship. And as their ship sails by the sirens, as the sirens sing their beautiful but deadly song, where is Odysseus? Securely tied to the mast. And as the sirens sing more loudly, the sailors pull more tightly, and they ensure that Odysseus cannot break free, he cannot change course, he cannot grab the wheel and cast their ship upon the rocks. And in the end, the ship sails by, and Odysseus and his men go safely on their way. How often do you feel self-condemned? 
You know, sometimes the condemnation of our hearts, the accusations of the devil, they are as powerful as a siren song, aren't they? So tempting, so alluring, and yet so deadly. What must we do? Tie ourselves to the mast of God's truth. Tie ourselves to the mast of God's truth. And the more the sirens sing, the louder they sing, the more tightly we must cling to the mast of that ship, the more tightly we must cling to the cross of Christ. So when your heart condemns you, when the devil accuses you, dear brother and sister, tie yourself to the truth of the gospel. And when you do, you will not be shaken. You will not change your course. You will not shipwreck your faith. How do you do that? Verse 23. Keep on believing in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And keep on loving one another. Let me pray. God, in the depths of our struggle, in the condemnation of our hearts, we so desperately need the objective, unchangeable and unshakable truth of the Lord Jesus. And so when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we pray that we might look at the Lord Jesus time and time and time again. And every time we are tempted to think that our sin is so great that we are beyond redemption, help us see that your mercy is more over and over and over again. For Jesus' sake. Amen.